For April 2nd, 2018, it's the Overthinking It podcast, episode 509. Consider yourself a hero. Welcome to Overthinking It, where we subject the popular culture to a level of scrutiny it probably doesn't deserve. The overthinkers are like, well, we're like your clan. We're all clanned up together as smart, funny friends from the internet in search of the Easter egg of meaning inside the labyrinthine maze that is a popular culture. I'm Matt Rather. I am here with my good friends, Pete Fenzel. Hello, Matt. And Mark Lee. Hey, Matthew. We're talking about Ready Player One, uh, the book and the movie, the Ernest Klein book, and the Steven Spielberg film that they made about this. So, uh, spoiler alert for uh, spoiler alert for both of those incarnations of this pop culture property. Though, before you go, if you're going to pause this podcast and uh, not listen to it now, I just want to say that finally, finally, the internet has done something for socially awkward white man children. <laughs> it's about freaking time. I know, really. Seriously. <laughs> also, spoiler alerts for the 1980s. <laughs> not really. It doesn't depict a lot of what happened in the 1980s. No, not not, <laughs> not at not all. Really. Though there are a couple of good soundtrack moments, you know, that are uh, that are nice. Um, but uh, uh, and and allusions to film scores of the 1980s that were all that were all pretty fun. I mean, it would have been almost too meta if uh, if john williams had written the score right like uh, i think alan silvestri wrote the score to this and and i you know i'm glad because we would have had uh orchestraception and that would not have uh, been good for anyone in the theater there are so many angles um to go at this at and and i i just i just i want to say at the outset uh if you are religious about ready player one uh on either end of the spectrum if you hold like a highly polarized um you know faith-based view of this pop culture property we're probably going to piss you off a little bit in this uh in this podcast and that's okay unleash uh unleash your railgun of of knowledge on us in the comments uh you can go to overthinking it.com slash otip 509 that's overthinking it podcast 509 leave a comment there and uh let us know but there are so many ways into these properties um the one i want to start with uh is a question, and I'll, and I'll pose it to you, Pete. Ready Player One book, Ready Player One movie. We know who the good guy is because he's on the poster. Who's the bad guy? This is a really important question, I think, yeah. for understanding. So it's also this is a video, it's a movie adaptation that is extremely different from its source material in almost every possible respect. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> plot, plot, oh, yeah. tone, uh, yeah. focus. I think. Yep. Just the sequence of events, the the time period that it references is very different. But to sum it up, the villain's a great place to start because the movie Ready Player One, I would call it a pastiche. A nostalgic pastiche of symbols and tropes, and uh, and kind of per- and it's a baroque parodic pastiche of a pretty broad range of pop culture that's somewhat '80s focused, but not really. And as such, or not exclusively, rather, and as such, the villain is the high school principal character <laughs> who is this sort of like foolish. 
vain and and kind of caught in a world of children against his will character, which is Nolan Sorrento. Yeah. Where he's this corporate executive who doesn't really want to have the assignment of working in this virtual reality program with a bunch of kids, much like kind of an angry vice principal in a John Hughes movie. And uh, and and so or in Fer- you know, Ferris Bueller's Day Off is the one that comes to mind. And so he ends up kind of arrogantly dismissing the kids and then getting his comeuppance from them over the course of the movie. And and it, the movie is something of a joke in terms of the stakes. Uh, oh, it's the world needs to be saved. It's it. Everything is ridiculous. And the very idea that this whole simulation is the stake of the, the stakes of the entire world comes off to me as something of something of a joke, something of a send up. So at least at least at the very least we're in the uh, we're in mock epic territory rather than epic territory yep. where we're kind of trotting through. Uh, the the psyche and the phantasmagoria of a whole bunch of people and and taking a story structure and kind of stretching it out all over those things. Whereas the book is different. The book is about a single person whose influence is so profound and whose consideration for other people is so underdeveloped that his own manias become the world that everybody else in the world is forced to live in. And not just forced to live in, and it's not even the world that they're forced to live in, the world that they want to live in ends up being the the world of this one man's just brutally sad and kind of dark manias and fixations. And this is Halliday, the programmer who created the Oasis. The idea, and the Oasis, of course, in this movie, in case you're listening to this, having not seen the movie or read the book, will do you this service. I think it'll be still be an interesting episode. This is a story about a genius programmer who is a combination Atari pioneer, uh, Facebook pioneer, Oculus pioneer, Google pioneer. It's this this sort of expressionistic, almost fascistic tech mensch who created everything. And in the future, the real world is derelict and, ob- and obsolete and barren. And the tech, the tech fascist world is all consuming. And anybody who tries to make any of the, anything of themselves tries to do it in order uh, by fixating on this man's life and his passions and obsessions in the hope that they could win his power by becoming more him than him uh, in some way. And so it's this maddening trip where, where just this impossible number of obsessions are carried out. Now, granted, there is also a Nolan Sorrento in the book. There is also an evil corporation in the book. But to me, at least, it felt like the evil corporation in the book was more of a feature of the landscape than a, a something that was kind of an, an outsider in in regard to the hero. Like, the hero is in regard to the world and the fixations and manias of the world, which are all around not just 80s culture, but very specifically late 70s and early 80s culture, a pre-Nintendo video game world, uh, which is huge. And we'll go into that a little bit later. But but that was it for me, was that that Halliday, the guy in the movie played by Mark Rylance as a friendly wizard, is, is kind of a, a crazy man. He's the Willy Wonka of the books. And while I don't think that the intention of the author in the books was to make Halliday the villain, I think that from my perspective reading it, that's how it comes off. And of course, since we think the author is dead, we know the author is dead, that, that, that I think is a pretty legitimate way of interpreting and reading. I don't know, Matt, what did you think about these two things? The idea that that uh, that um, Nolan Sorrento is the sort of campy, silly villain of the funny movie 
and the genius who inspired the virtue of reality and all of his consuming passions are the villain of the kind of crazy and dark book. Yeah, I mean, I think that's right. I, I think you're exactly right, in fact. And I'll, I'll just line up a few more things um, to uh, to kind of buttress this argument, right? Like, in the film, when he finally, when Sorrento finally gets to the van and is going to shoot um, uh, uh, oh, I don't know, what's his name? Big Lips McGee. Uh, Wade. Uh, the, the <laughs> Wade Boggs. Yeah. His name is Wade Boggs. Right. He's an 80s <laughs> retro reference. Uh, Tysha <laughs> Sher- Ty Sheridan, the uh, yep. the um, Dewey Dewey Young actor, um, the, the guy who isn't the guy from Fantastic Four, right? Right, what looks like him? It's the guy from Dunkirk, right? Is that who he is? Oh, is that who he is? Or is that okay? Or is it not the guy from Dunkirk? I'm gonna, I have, thought... to, I'm gonna have to go down the IMDb rabbit hole on yeah. him because it would be. Uh, no, I don't see Dunkirk on. No, on it's his not thing. the guy. There's another one of these guys who all look the same as each other. Oh, Gee. he was he was Cyclops in X Men Apocalypse. Oh, great. <laughs> okay, <laughs> that Sorry. that makes it all clear. When Sorrento finally gets to the finally gets to the the van to uh, to shoot Duckface in his duck face, um, the uh, the. Um, change of heart that he has there didn't make a lot of sense to me but it makes sense to me the way that you're explaining it which is that like he's realizing that like in the spiritual kind of archetypal story of the movie he's going he's realizing that the kids will be kids that the kids have their own spirit and it's kind of beautiful and that he shouldn't be so old and crotchety he doesn't really have the stakes of a like a sort of multinational corporation or anything like that uh behind him right and he doesn't have the though um you know in the the crucial scene for raising the stakes when they blow up a city block full of you know dozens if not hundreds of people uh the ioi do um though that is still in the film it's almost disconnected from the actual experience of what's going on inside ioi which is really a keystone cops kind of scenario both on the simulator floor right as they're all like falling out and it's like get back in you know get back in there respawn you know and in the in the nerd factory where the oopaloompas are uh you know shouting at each other about 1980s um 1980s trivia and Ginny Weasley right like uh completely unaccountably kisses beardy mcbeardface uh at at the end when the the battle is won not by them so so yeah that that's that and then the other right like the other the thing about this the thing about the book it is like you you pete had a post on social media that i think is uh is absolutely right which is that this this the novel ready player one is a much better argument for the death of the author than anything else perhaps that we've ever talked about on overthinking it because what it is supposed to mean is so so different from what the experience of actually reading it is right it's supposed to be like anti-social media you know put take off your oculus goggles go outside smell a flower you might just kiss a girl you know and that's that's uh that is the the uh stated message right that's the point that you're supposed to get and that is not the point of the book because all of that stuff um 
all all of the stuff that you have to go through the kind of com- total identification with dear leader right in order to get to that point is you know to my mind almost fascistic uh in ter- in terms of like its insistence that everyone uh, sort of act the same way, you know, and like the same things and have the same point of view, right? And like yeah. IOI, the knock on IOI is that they are, that they are automatons and clones. But you know what? The Gunters are automatons and clones. They just have a slightly different, you know, their AIs, right? Like their deep learning algorithms have a slightly different training data set <laughs> than the, uh, than the IOI, uh, fascistic corporate corporate machines do what do you think mark yeah um adding on while we're piling on on james halliday as the victim right you could interpret that the villain rather uh, as, sorry as the villain um you could say typical that internet is... privilege right <laughs> he's the victim no. you think he's you're the, the villain well, another way in which he is the villain uh more particularly in the book less so in the movie uh but in a certain way also in the movie is that um he has deprived an entire generation of their own pop culture Right. What a frightening thought that everyone is so obsessed with this 80s stuff because of the Easter egg hunt and this, that and the other, that there's no like chance the rapper coming up and mm-hmm. laying down sick beats and laying down rhymes. Um, there's that aspect of it. Another thing that makes Halliday the victim, and this is like really is at the heart of this whole notion of the book is whether it's for or against escapism, this, that and the other, is that I think you could argue – I don't think it's explicit in the book of the movie, but I think you could argue that um, the Oasis – uh, is not just a place to escape from the horrible real world. It is becomes a hindrance from people actually going out into the real world and fixing it. And it allows it to just continue to fester in its horrible, like ecological and political state of uh, state of affairs. Uh, does that resonate with you guys? Yeah, and it, can't, it can't help. It can't help like all the power for all the server farms and things like this. Like we're talking about global warming because of cryptocurrency, mining by the way get otis coin but the uh <laughs> right like there are actual honest to god news outlets that that do you know real real live news stories about uh how the the heat generated from all the energy spent you know cryptocurrency mining is a non-trivial factor in in accelerating global climate change and and like that doesn't seem to be a problem right like there seems to be a lot of scarcity a lot of uh a lot of social decay but uh, great internet connections wherever you want to go. It's it's pretty. Uh, I don't know the 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 world building in one sense. It doesn't like a lot of techno utopias or techno dystopias. It doesn't make a lot of sense. Well, it it doesn't make a lot of sense politically. Um, you know, considering the the history of human beings and and how they can be presumed to act, you know, uh, in different kinds of situations. But there is this sort of in in the quote unquote world building, there is some sort of fetishistic uh, rule following or rule making. Um, you know, internally consistent. Uh, this kind of mania for internal consistency, right? That I think was something that you identified, uh, Pete, when we were talking on Facebook about when we were inside the Oasis talking about the Oasis. Um, that uh, that there there are often often uh, in the novel parenthetical explanations uh, about um, 
about th- some information that you just got that are that are meant to kind of slot them into an internally consistent uh, worldview. Parenthetical explanations are when immediately following a sentence, <laughs> when there is, uh, uh, you know, elucidation or exposition or explanation of uh, what has come before. Right. Yeah. So the the idea is that the book is in this rush to make everything that it says make sense, and. So the Ready Player One, it's a it's a book from 2011, and it's not as dissimilar from The Hunger Games as you would think. <laughs> and I think that I'm surprised that nope, I haven't heard anybody mention that this game is from that same oeuvre, well, not oeuvre, but paradigm of The Hunger Games, Divergent, The Maze Runner. The, the, it, I guess because the book itself isn't really positioned as young adult fiction because it's nostalgia fiction for people currently in their mid to late 30s. <laughs> and who at the time were in their early to mid thirties. <laughs> oh, the, oh, those were the days. <laughs> but uh, but it's similar in that the giant world that these people live in. And I love how you always would frame this when we discuss the Hunger Games. Is yes, it's an indictment of the problems of the real world, but it is also a landscape of the problems of the adolescent mind. And so Panem in the Hunger Games, where the capital has all the schmancy luxury and the people out on the fringes have nothing and nobody on the fringes has any power and nobody on the fringes is able to identify who they are and entertainment kind of absorbs your ability to express yourself. That's partly about, you know, bread and circuses in the real world, but it's partly about being an adolescent and trying to grow into an adult and going up against a lifestyle set up for you that doesn't allow you to actualize yourself. And it's so we there are these sort of dystopian novels that came out, you know, r- around the same time that all go into this where the world prevents you from growing up and you rebel against the world in order to grow up. And Ready Player One, the novel is similar in that its main protagonist is basically forced to pay attention to the pop culture of his parents and grandparents generations and does not have any self-possession of his own, except that he never grows up and he never throws it off. He just he just goes into the Capitol and becomes like he becomes snow. He becomes President Snow of the Hunger Games (laughs) (laughs) and uh, and it's and it's positioned as good. (laughs) <laughs> question mark because you get the sense that there's some sort of deep wound that's informing the writing of this book <laughs> that uh that is is blind to itself that that there's a sense that the book is positioning things like playing zork as awesome wherein i've played zork and i don't find it awesome <laughs> i find it compared to modern video games to be alienating and difficult and isolating <laughs> right like have you uh, let's take let's step back from the high level uh analysis of all this stuff and i just want to ask you guys have either of you guys actually played legit old school text adventures? Oh yeah, all the Infocom games. I had a box set called The Lost Treasures of Infocom uh, yeah. that I did. But I in in the old days I had a, a five and a half inch, uh, sorry five and a quarter inch floppies that were on. Oh God, take my nerd card away. Uh, that I put in my Apple to to see. Um, Zork was easy compared with The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. Yes. I was going to say that. I've played the hit- so the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. This is where the meta the Ready Player One podcast goes meta and we start <laughs> referencing pop culture. But it's for a purpose, right? The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy text adventure, which if I were merely to explain it to you, like, oh, you've read, describe it to you and 
you've never encountered it. The Hitchhiker, Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy books are fun. They're they're humorous. They're accessible. They deal with very heavy themes, but they do it in a light way. They're universally beloved by everybody who reads them. The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy text adventure video game is fiendishly impossibly difficult to the point of madness. I mean, that's my that was my take on it when I tried to play it. That was brutal. It's no, it's brutal. And and like flesh it out, yeah. And also and also cruel because you can get to the end of the game without having obtained an item near the beginning of the game that you need to win, and you just die at that. You know, at that at that point, and you know the only recourse is to is to play again from the beginning right like and i don't know maybe you feel like oh fair play you know that's their game they can design it how you know they can design it however they want like and yes but like there is a a sort of contract um there also are very few clues as to how to win the game right in in the game and you have to have a body of knowledge from the books i think uh in order to know that certain um, you know, certain moves are are necessary. I could get onto the heart of gold, or no, sorry, I could get into the Vogon ship. I'm not sure I could get to the heart of gold. And uh, my space fleet ended up getting swallowed by a dog more than once. That, that was uh, that was but, that was rough. But this feels this feels a lot like the Ready Player One book to me. The way you're describing it. That, that you need to have outside knowledge to bring it into the game or else the game is just going to punish you. But if you bring in the outside knowledge and you win, you get this huge validation of having been the awesomest. I remember at some point in that game you had to put together some sort of device using five or six different random objects that had to be assembled in a specific order and there was no way of knowing what they were. There's no there's no there was no way to 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 like experience that game without a walkthrough at, after yeah. a certain point, you know. Yeah, and it's I mean it's from a certain point of view you could call Ready Player 1 uh, the novel as nostalgia for a time when when we could actually outdo the machines right mm. and like the the in the first gate in the novel when it's uh you know an underground thing where you play um you play joust, joust yeah against the dungeons and dragons monster right you um the idea of the le- you know the uh, if, you, if this sounds less fun than the movie it's because it is yeah right but anyway because <laughs> in the movie the first challenge is to drive back to the future delorean past king kong in the book it's to play joust <laughs> first is to look at a lot of maps and then it's to play joust right. which i don't know if you play joust but it's like balloon fight for people who don't like fun <laughs> <laughs> um it's uh and and uh like in that the um he uh wade sort of figures out the ai's weakness right that and there's like even some time spent put into like every ai is you know you know you can kind of notice and exploit its uh you know partic- the particular limitations of its heuristics or the per- particular limitations of of its algorithms right and that is no longer the case you know with modern ais yeah. like like today that's no longer the case right like you can't beat a computer at chess anymore 
anymore. And the uh, and so in and and by the way, like in 2011, it was also no longer the case, and it was very easy. It would have been very easy to extrapolate that one thing. Um, so uh, out into you know four or five decades into the future, and so the idea that the idea that you can sort of beat the uh, this AI can this uh, system can like create you know zillions and zillions of photorealistic worlds that it laser scans onto your retina in a perfect VR simulation and yet like it can't beat you at a uh, at an old style you know cabinet video game like an old style arcade game doesn't make a whole lot of sense and and it strikes me that this detail is included because like the real nostalgia is for is for a time when you could be smarter you could you could go faster than the atari you know you could think faster than the atari because uh, yeah. you had the brain and the atari had the atari you know but you can't think faster than the the you know i don't know twenty forty five machine learning algorithm you know you can't uh and that that like that that might be the loss you know or the the thing that's that's really being mourned you know the idea that like the idea that all the pop culture is consumable rather than even today when you know six thousand billion minutes of youtube videos are uploaded every half second or something like that right like that there's just no way a lifetime is not enough to even have a cursory experience of everything that's out there and that like the 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 idea that you could have this person right now now he's a he is yeah he is a sort of willy wonka without without uh without any of the fun um or any of the the awareness from the world that no this is a dangerous crazy man and like uh and not a um you know i don't know steve jobsian tech hero right uh that you can have have this person and the person is comprehensible you know the person is is there's a finite quality to to the person right you can you can read all the things and get all the understanding of the person and 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 that that I don't know. That is one of the many sort of false beliefs I think that that undergird the that that provide uh, narrative energy to the novel Ready Player One. Yeah, let me just jump in here while we're you know we're mostly criticizing the novel Ready Player One, but the simplicity of that fantasy really is its selling point and what makes it work to the extent that it works. Um, Pete, I know that in your reading of it, um, you found the book to be lacking pretty severely, it seems like. But uh, well, no, I, 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 I remember very unhappy. I found it to be a very sad book. Uh, yeah. I mean, yeah, we can talk about whether that, it was that was bad, your take but, on it. Like, yeah. I, I found it to be immensely enjoyable. And like the um, like the the simplicity of its wish fulfillment fantasy, like just it just checked off all the boxes for me. And like that whole piece about, you know, mastering the computer and mastering like a certain body of pop culture. Uh, that was all aimed like a laser beam straight at my uh, at my like nine year old self who wanted to do all of those things and never could, um, and 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 just found it immensely satisfying that Wade Watts could do that. Um, the, this is all almost all everything that we described here though doesn't really come into play in the movie, right? Though, right? Like there's something very very different going on there. Uh, I don't know. Like Peter Matt, do you want to when you want to? Well, well like, you can the, you can instantly tell that the movie is going to be fundamentally different from the book because they say very early on in the movie, what is Halliday's favorite first person shooter? Mm. And you remember what the answer was? Goldeneye. Goldeneye. Favorite character? Odd job. 
Weapons. Which means he's a jerk, by the way. If you've got <laughs> job is his favorite character. Weapons slappers only, right? Which means which means which means no weapons. But of course we know what slappers only means because a Goldeneye came out in nineteen ninety-five. Well, that's when the movie came out, right? <laughs> and uh and, and the, the video game came out in nineteen ninety-seven. <laughs> so so Halliday played his favorite first person shooter when he was like well into his 40s <laughs> after he had already founded a successful video game company and operated it for 15 years. That <laughs> GoldenEye is not a GoldenEye is a favorite first person shooter of a lot of people. A- and it is it was, you know, mine certainly for a long time. It's not the best, but it was an it was the big thing about Goldeneye is that you could play it on your N64 in your house with your friends live. And so if you like to have people over and play video games, this was a great, great video game. And whereas Halo, you play online, right? Where at Goldeneye, you play in person. Yeah. And, and but, a lot yeah. of the lines of what we're talking about before, like it's it was finite and it was it felt like you can master the whole thing. Yeah, like there was no right. online. There wasn't people cheating. You know, there wasn't some like uh, a ten-year-old uh, in South Korea who was just poning the hell out of you. It was just like you and your friend. Yeah, you could. What? Have- what? This? He's ten years old. <laughs> okay. First of all, I love that moment in the movie. I just want to comment on that right now. <laughs> How the eleven-year-old kid in the Spielberg movie is there, and Artemis sees him. He sees Show, and it's like Show, and he says something effective like, "What." I'm 11 years old. Do I have a sign on me that says shoot me first? <laughs> right. <laughs> Which is I, I, I read it as a lot of shade thrown at the book because in the book, that kid is murdered like in real life. He is brutally murdered. And and I got to think that Spielberg sat down with the book after he bought the rights and was and just like put it down and was like, oh, my God, we're not going to murder. Now, he's not in the book. He's not a child. He's an adult playing a child. Who gets murdered, which is somehow worse, <laughs> right? Spielberg's like, no, we're, we're not, we're not killing the child. In yeah. fact, we're having the child specifically make fun of the fact that that they're going to kill the child. Sorry, I got sidetracked there. I just, I just love that there's a couple of moments in the movie where Spielberg has characters who are killed in the movie have big lines at near the end of the movie to almost, almost prove a point to the author that these characters shouldn't have been murdered. Uh, the old lady and stuff. But anyway, sorry, I got sidetracked. I got sidetracked. Uh, we were talking about how uh, Halliday's favorite video game is a game you play with friends where any one of your friends, everybody who had a group of friends, had a friend who thought they were the best at GoldenEye. And the idea that you might have two groups of friends and each group of friends had a different person who thought they were the best at GoldenEye and that those three people, two people might meet at some point was like an exciting possibility. I don't know if you guys have experienced this even now where it's like this guy said he was really good at GoldenEye back in like 2002. And this guy said he was really good at GoldenEye back in like 1998. Uh, I, have I, that, that. I have that but for Super Mario Kart. Yeah, exactly, exactly. But these are, this is a kind of gaming experience that Halliday isn't supposed to have experienced. Right. Holiday yeah. is supposed oh, yeah. to be solitary. So so this is the, what we're doing here is Holiday's personality in the movie has been stretched past the point where he really feels like one person. And he feels like more of a sort of general open and expressive enthusiasm for like video games and movies in general. Yeah, I, I kind of think. And that, so. that goes with the that goes with the. Um the nature of the film is kind of a pastiche, right? Like this is sort of, this is the thing where Godzilla and King Kong are in the first race, you know, uh, the, 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 
Yeah, um, Godzilla's in the first race. Isn't isn't he? Isn't there a dinosaur or something that that kills so it's people? A t- it's the T Rex oh, from Jurassic Park. It's the T Rex. Right? Well, it can't be. It can't be from Jurassic Park because I think Steven Spielberg is is uh, reputed to have taken out all the references to his own films. In, uh, in <laughs> that's a load of crap. That's totally the Jurassic Park. The so it's the T. It's the T Rex from Jurassic World, not uh, not the T Rex. Oh, okay. Wow, I bow to your superior geek knowledge, Matt. <laughs> Man, you should be in charge of the government. <laughs> Um, yeah, uh, well, yeah, speaking of the, well, no, let's, let's talk, I mean, I feel like we could go down the rabbit, we could go down the rabbit hole, um, of the novel because it's, I think, largely wrongly become this sort of shibboleth, uh, for, you know, all kinds of negative, uh, negative, like bad enactments of, of various kinds of things on the internet. So let's, let's talk about the, uh, let's talk about the, um, the, the, uh, let's talk about the film and the, the, the villains in the film. Um, the, uh, the principal and the vice principal, whose name improbably is Finale. <laughs> uh, though I though I looked at IMDb and the the character is pronounced F uh, is, is spelled F apostrophe N A L E. Uh, so Finale, Finale. Um, <laughs> but that uh, that Finale, uh, who you know is dispatched with with almost no effort in the in the finale right like the the um i put in mind of something pete said about arrival uh spoilers for arrival once you get to the end of arrival you realize that no one was actually ever in peril at any point (laughs) (laughs) during the film arrival like it was all gonna go okay all along uh because it's about predestination (laughs) time is a time is a flat circle or something like that the uh and that this um with uh you know with with principal mcmustache twirly uh you know having a change of heart right at the end you know right on the cusp of of uh uh after you know uh, right on the cusp of of shooting uh shooting wade in the face um and you know this is after he got a severe crotch trauma from uh <laughs> by the way this is kind of a crotch obsessed movie uh you know not one but two there's a good and a bad version right like as as you'd expect from uh i don't know what like Kleinian part objects or something right like that there's there's a good crotch rub there's there's a good crotch touch and a bad crotch touch in uh uh in this film and uh like on the that change of heart and then uh finale is is you know her finale is not much of a finale at all she just falls out the back of a van like on the second try you know and and that like uh it's like when you jump kick adobo out of the helicopter in in double dragon it's like what that's it (laughs) that's all although he does come back yeah um so so the and and by the way it's with a fire extinguisher and they don't even shoot the fire extinguisher at her they throw the fire fire extinguisher at her right like that's you know after after all that uh crotch stuff you'd expect a blast of white never mind the um oh, the, gross. the problem right the problem with the end of the movie to me is that like they're not there's a lot of noise and bumping around you know but they're not actually in any real peril 
you know, right. because uh, because uh, Finale is going to get knocked out the back of the car, and you know, you know, she is, and the uh, and the. Um, the uh the, i can't even remember the name of the character sorrento uh you know the the italian mob boss sorrento is uh <laughs> you know just going to lose you know is just going to lose his nerve r- right at the end and by the way the puzzle is solved like 10 minutes of screen time before right like right. you know the the even even before it's telegraphed by uh by um uh Ginny Weasley, right, not uh, knowing the uh, knowing the answer before um, and getting shut down by the by all the mansplainers. But the you know, but the even we know the answer before and it's all you know, it's all done. Right. And there's only all that that is left is a lot of uh, I don't know, it's a lot of sound and, and fury. Um, well, God, I, I was trying to make a point before and it was that the villains are badly acted. So I want to I want to read something for you, which is a Wikia page. This is an excerpt from a Wikia page from the Villains Wiki, and it is from a villain that uh, Sorrento and Finale or what have you in this movie reminded me of, which is the villains in Kindergarten Cop. <laughs> uh, you got you've seen Mark. Who, who's your daddy? What does he do? You've seen Kindergarten Cop, of course, I, I, right? Shame it's a myth. I actually haven't. Oh, you got. Oh, so I know. I, to spoil I, I the end of Kindergarten. I'm Cop. clearly not qualified to run the government. Sorry. So, so the villain, the the main villain, the villains in Kindergarten Cop are a dude and his mom. So it's a grown man and his mom who are in for some reason, which I've seen this movie multiple times. I don't care. It doesn't matter. Are involved with this elementary school where Arnold Schwarzenegger has been sent as a cop to try to stop them to do from doing something. And I want to read you off this wikia the sequence of events that happens to cullen crisp the villain of kindergarten cop at the end of this movie uh all right and and so it goes (laughs) crisp is released from prison and he and eleanor his mother go straight to astoria elementary school using the information he received from the informant eventually locating rachel dominic and kimball in one of the classrooms crisp sets the school library on fire and while everyone is fleeing he abducts dominic and escapes with him he is spotted though by kimball's students and kimball gives chase while crisp attempts to convince dominic that he is his father as kimball arrives crisp uses his own son as a hostage but the class pet ferret that dominic had rescued during the fire alarm bites crisp in the neck in pain crisp shoots kimball in the knee but kimball instantly grabs his gun and fires three shots into crisp's chest ending his life forever so um if the cavalcade of nonsense that that the cacophony of benny hill as missed opportunities and zaniness at the end of the ready player one movie it feels familiar from movies from the actual 80s uh this movie's from 1990 it should right it's like oh there was a ferret in the first scene of the movie and now the ferret comes back at the end to bite the bad guy and save the day right and uh Oh no! Like they're the, all of the school children point at the villain, and then the hero knows where he is. Like this feels familiar. Even the idea that Finale gets like kicked out of the van, uh, it does not feel contemporary to me. And I thought that that was that that there's so much overt reference, and we haven't even gotten into the overt reference in this movie. The overt 
characters that appear from culture where, you know, Blizzard probably paid a lot of money to put Tracer from Overwatch in this movie and Minecraft's in the movie, stuff like that. But there's like subtle reference <laughs> where the movie is structured as a parody-ish kind of piece about movies that were Spielberg either made or were contemporaries of his or maybe not as good contemporaries of his. Uh, you know, I guess maybe what, like, sort of like Tron, but not really. But much more like Goonies. Movies, like, yeah, Goonies. Goonies yeah. <laughs> like, oh, like like when they find the pirate, right? They find the pirate skull, Iraq <laughs> finds the pirate skull. And he's like, oh, the pirate had this treasure. That's a Goonies thing. And that's very silly. Uh, but it's it's in the movie because the movie is pulling together sort of stylistic elements as well as overt symbolic elements to uh, cobble together this kind of Pilgrim's progress that's taking place. Uh, I guess it's more of a Finnegan's Wake kind of situation, uh, although happier than that, I suppose. I don't know. I just wanted to point that out. It's like, what's the norm that we're operating against here? Uh, it, there's it has it has it has dimensions. What, one of them is its general kind of lack of diversity. Another one is uh, is the zaniness of the villains and the way that they get kicked out of trucks and and they get disabused in their crotches and and physically humiliated as well as defeated. By the way, the villain's master plan in this movie, I believe, is to charge advertisements for using a video game. <laughs> Right, yeah, it's to actually, yeah, it's to monetize the internet. Yes. This podcast is brought to you by Audible. No. <laughs> yeah, exactly. No, by Otis Coin. <laughs> but, like, I mean, I feel like, and again, we put the books aside. In the books, it's like, this is the only way that people live. If IOI were to take it over, it would ruin the world. But, like,. We see a RoboCop-style board meeting where the bad executive is like, hey, everybody, we're going to do this really terrible thing that would make us a lot of money. And they're like, that's a very good idea. Yeah, you should totally do that. Um, but, but yeah, like the stakes are – like there's a resistance against electronic arts. <laughs> yeah. Right? It's like, look, they really start Star Wars Battlefront 2, and you have to pay $4,000 to play at Darth Vader, and we are going underground and arming ourselves. <laughs> right? Like it's – um. Is there no other video game company in the world? Yeah. Hey, uh, hey, Pete Rockstar took took money, took payola to put music into the Grand Theft Auto soundtrack, and uh, we're going to go on a, a, a rampage against them. Welcome to the rebellion. Yeah. So, I'm, but I'm not saying this just to say that the movie is implausible. I'm saying this to say that the movie is like baroque and parodic and is not really taking itself very seriously. Well, no, yeah, it's it's, 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 it's yeah. You go. Okay, yeah, it's parodic, and it's not taking it seriously from that dimension of the villain, certainly. right? There's no doubt about that at all. But I think the children, or not the children, the young people, Wade, Artemis, uh, so on and so forth, the, the main players of it, um, their journey, their achievements, their struggles, and their growth is played pretty straightforward, though. Right. Even and like you get that kid who roundhouses them like Kino from Ninja Turtles 2. <laughs> <laughs> OK, not all of it. OK, like, <laughs> mo most of it. Like we're supposed to get those Spielberg feels uh, along oh, the way, yeah. and particularly at the end when they're trying when they're triumphant. But my, Mark, would you say we're supposed to get the spiels? Ah, yeah, yes, we are. That, that is exactly <laughs> what I'm saying. Um, oh, by the way, also Robocop, you mentioned he's totally in the movie. Did you catch that, Pete? No, I didn't see RoboCop. I'm 99% sure, yeah. That, like, just like one of like, the, the scenes of characters milling about various virtual worlds, uh, RoboCop, uh, Tim Murphy, totally there. So here's a question. Why is everybody in the movie using the characters from the 80s? Yeah. 
<laughs> right? Because that's an unanswered question. Because the 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 first of all, the quest is much shorter. It's only been happening for five years. And it doesn't really seem like everybody is entirely fixated on the quest. A lot of people just go grind levels and have fun and play and have workshops and they build settlements like Fallout 4, but ones that you don't clip through the walls. And it's it's just like a fun place to go and have a fun time. And yet they all use pop culture from, I mean, to, to quote the finest radio stations around the 70s, 80s, 90s and today. Right. Like, <laughs> so today's best throwbacks. I mean, um, I mean, there, there hasn't been a Battletoads video game in a few decades, so many, many decades at that point. But they used the new Ninja Turtles, not the old Ninja Turtles. They were, I did see the Battletoads. I was really excited. I love pimples, zits, and rash. I thought you liked the Battletoads. <laughs> um, so so <laughs> does this really take place in the future, I guess, is my question. I mean, well, no. Yeah. <laughs> right? <laughs> uh, right. No. The developed idea of the internet, I think, is a really good signal, right? That's like notions of like privacy and surveillance uh, aren't really interrogated in this movie in the way that we're actually having that conversation now in 2018. I wonder right. when production started on, on this movie because like it, it, it feels, um, you know, I don't know. It feels like a, uh, feels old. feels dated already. Well, no, the, the the book feels like something I'm trying to put these ideas together. The book feels like something that belongs to 2011 that would be completely inappropriate like that that would be kind of out of place to the point of being completely inappropriate if it were released in 2017, right? Like I think some of the some of the dystopia and some of the like, you know, um I, I feel like the mood, the national mood, has changed to the point where the the tone of the book probably wouldn't fly um, as you know as much as it did at the time. Right? Does that does that make sense? The the because uh, unless the um, like unless it is a serious. I, you know, I don't know. The, the, I've, a lot of the times, the point of dystopias is that they're not—they're not likely, but they're plausible, right? And and you know, this one seemed seemed plausible, and I—I I don't know well, the, a, the, the relationship. The, I'm struggling, Pete. Help me here. So, in a very basic sense, Ready Player One, the book takes place against the backdrop of a huge housing collapse. And I think that that's a big deal. A global, well, a, glo- a global financial meltdown, really. Yes, like housing, they're, commodities. It, commodity, yeah. Exactly. And so it's a product of its time in the sense that it's, it's written in the aftermath of the giant global housing collapse, commodities crisis, financial crisis, Great Recession that followed through for the subsequent years. It, it is contemporary with the movie Drive, which I feel like is a good thing to compare it to because it's sort of similarly uh, backward looking, but also it's backward looking, but communicates contemporary anxieties. Uh, Stuff like, um, I mean, gosh, this this was when uh, X-Men First Class came out. So there's like like when I'm looking at the movies that came out in 2011 when this book came out and I'm seeing things that feel more contemporary and forward looking and things that feel kind of backward looking to that era as well. Um, 
you know, like sort. We watched Source Code. Did a podcast about Source Code, which is another movie about being inside of a computer simulation. From this, and, and so I can see this book as being contemporaneous with the with Source Code and coming from the same sort of. And also, like the degree to which social media and technology had transformed our lives was apparent, right? But no long, but not yet fully baroque. You could still kind of live without it if you pretended, I suppose. Right, and I guess the um, I guess the shift that I'm talking about is it seems to me in in U.S. politics anyway, and this is this is not a, a book or a film with with really a global perspective, uh, despite the presence of Japanese stereotypes in in both the the, the book and the movie. Um, it's it's really a kind of U.S. focused one, and and it seems like like there's been a shift in this country from thinking that like macroeconomic forces are going to kill us to thinking that cultural forces, right. Mm. Are going to kill us that, that, uh, you know, I don't know the lack, sort of the lack of a shared culture or, you know, the, the, the lack of a kind of a stable, um, a basis for relating to to one another across, you know, race and class divides um, is what's going to is what's going to do us in. And you know, depending on how, depending on you know, the, the extent to which you believe things like facts and evidence, um, the, uh, that that the the systems of democracy are, are being sort of subverted uh, by powerful forces that aim to, um, you know, uh, uh, redirect them for their own, uh, for their own gain uh, to the, to the great detriment of everybody else. And it's not, you know, I, and the, the film, I, I ask like whether it's, I, I basically I'm being coy. Like I, I more or less want to know whether it's a, uh, uh, whether production screenwriting and production on the film was done pre Trump or post Trump. Right. Yeah. Because I think that that, I think that it marks a turning point in the culture where, um, where a lot of these things came, uh, came more, came more to the fore, right? Things, uh, things like identity group membership, um, you know, uh, uh, cultural grievance, economic grievance and, and things like this became, uh, you know, the, the idea of who, who can claim the mantle as the sort of permanent underclass, like these became questions that are more, um, more, uh, current in, in the culture today. So looking it up, Warner Brothers bought the rights to Ready Player One before it came out. <laughs> so, as in before the book was published. Sure. Warner Brothers won an auction for the rights to it in 2010. And then Steven Spielberg was signed on to direct it and produce it. And uh, then it sort of lies low until about 2015. And so 2015 is when they're casting it and getting it together and working on it. Uh, and they finished the first week of filming in July of 2016. So it's a project that was conceived in the aftermath, in a pre-Trump aftermath of the financial crisis, wherein how I would describe it is there was a, there was a correlation between personal and economic disempowerment. Uh, that, and, and also sort of the, the idea that if you were economically disempowered, it also meant that you felt like you might be losing your voice. Whereas now, I think that there's a sense that being economically disempowered gives you a louder voice. Feeling like you have been left behind uh, is, what, is what gives you the occasion to shout. 
And as such, you know, Wade, Wade should not be so shy <laughs> and not be so reserved if this were a, a more contemporary <clears throat> sort of piece. And certainly his his colleagues, right, would not be quite so, uh, you know, meek in the way that they refer, they talk to the, their enemies. Right. right. They would He's, be much angrier. Yeah. Yeah. You yeah. see so just a tiny little sliver of that at the end when the, the common people, right, the um, the masses, the neighbors, uh, almost, it looks like they're going to rise up to defend. Um, wait, and then and totally the fail to one little yeah, yeah. one little pistol, and they're they're all uh, they just all, and they like silently part, like they don't like they part like the Red Sea. It's not like they run screaming for cover, you know, that was like a weird head fake, right? Yeah, like yeah. Uh, oh, this is an obstacle to me, the villain getting what I want, but I have this magical object. It was almost a video game, uh, video game yeah. style thing, you know. Like when you have a torch <laughs> and, the, and wolves can't get close to you when yeah, you have Gru, a torch. You, you can't get eaten by a Gru in Zork, yeah. by the way. You know. Can I also just say that all you have to do is put the Iron Giant on screen for more than 10 seconds and I'll just weep openly. <laughs> I'm just going to say that right now. <laughs> Did you guys you, you, connect? You, you like that reference is what you're saying, Pete. <laughs> it's more than I like the reference. It's that I like the Iron Giant. Uh, so I was thinking about this because I was thinking about nostalgia. And we should at least hit on the idea of nostalgia and escapism a little bit in this movie before we wrap things up. And I was, I was thinking about how the contention might be that the reason that I see the Iron Giant and have strong feelings about the Iron Giant is because I'm nostalgic for having seen and connected with the Iron Giant in the past. And when I see the Iron Giant now... I connect with what it was like to see him then. And I wonder if if that's not quite what's happening, because I cried then, too. <laughs> like the first time I saw the Iron Giant, I cried. Uh, I mean, doesn't everybody cry at the end of the Iron Giant? I mean, in fact, I'm not even going to spoil what happens at the end of the Iron Giant, because you should watch it if you haven't, because it's amazing. And I, I mean, it, I was a blubbering mess at the end of the Iron Giant. And, and I wonder whether... We've seen so much nostalgia now, and we've we've felt that pang of nostalgia entertainment so much over the course of the last 10, 15 years for people of our generation. Uh, not that it's particularly new to do nostalgia, but it's new for us because we've been around long enough for it to happen. Is that is that it becomes difficult to differentiate when you like something because you like something versus you like something because you've seen it before, because it's familiar. And uh if if I were to watch another um, like like consider different franchises of movies that have different sort of levels of vitality in the current day, like if there were another Terminator movie that came out, my association and feeling about it would mostly be related to the first Terminator movies that came out a long time ago. I would not really expect it to be on their level, but I might still see it because I have feelings that are nostalgic about the franchise. But if they made another. If they made a new, oh gosh, it's funny because I was th- at first I thought if they made a new Firefly, I was like, no, if they made a new Firefly, it'd be terrible because uh, <laughs> it would it would just be like nostalgic about the old Firefly. I'm trying to think about like some franchise where if they made a new one, I mean, the Fast and the Furious is the one I always trot out. Where I don't watch the Fast and Furious movies because of nostalgia, I watch them because each individual one I expect to love. Um, for you know, in in a fresh, in, not necessarily in a fresh new way, maybe in a familiar way, but it's not coasting. Hey Pete, it's what not, if, yeah. what if they updated beloved eighty sitcom Roseanne for the? <laughs> <laughs> there you go. <laughs> did you watch it? I did not watch. The no, no, no. I I I had no desire. It would have just made me angry. <laughs> my my uh, my dental hygienist was excited to watch it, but didn't think she would be able to stay up late enough to watch it. 
Um, oh, well, yeah. here's a good example of like the nostalgia retread uh, uh, factor going let play that, that we're talking about here. A RoboCop, right? Yeah. One amazing movie, two pretty terrible movies, and then everyone's like, "Hey, people liked RoboCop. Here's some RoboCop," and it wasn't that great, right? No, no, it was it was it was better than I expected because it was like a competent movie, and I expected it to be an utter travesty. Um, but actually, I was really excited about it at the time, and I wanted it to be good. <laughs> um, but it's not on the level of RoboCop. Yeah, that's for sure. Who? What would it have to be? Like, if it was another Iron Giant, I, I, I feel like the Iron Giant, maybe Spielberg just has a lot of a lot of uh, cred. I guess Stranger Things is a good example, where people are excited about the new seasons of Stranger Things, and Stranger Things is full of retro stuff, but they're not primarily excited about Stranger Things for the sake of the nostalgia. The new It movie was really good, and I think that uh, we got it got to a point where you could be excited for the new It movie, not because of Tim Curry, not even because of Stephen King, but because it was a good action horror movie. Uh, and and I and I think that um, you know the Dark Tower was terrible for many of the same reasons, um, but yeah, but like like I wonder if we, we can kind of create a salient division here between properties that have a nostalgic aspect but are vital versus the properties where you've kind of departed from them and come back, and the nostalgia is a big is is the really the dominant flavor of how you enjoy it, like the DeLorean in this movie at this point. Does anybody even care about a DeLorean anymore? No, yeah, and I mean it's yeah. not like I don't know. Do you feel like they're going to be more back to the to the future movies? I mean, probably because they'll do it. But like, um, uh, I don't know that that uh, it's I don't know. It's it just doesn't seem to have something that that can be re uh, recreated. Yeah. I right? mean, they could trot it out, and you could appreciate it for nostalgic purposes. But what's the story that it has to tell? Yeah. I've been watching Star Trek Voyager, as I've mentioned a couple times on the podcast, all the way through. And thank God I got to the part where Seska dies. She's so freaking annoying. She's, by the way, the Ash Tyler of Voyager. Sure. <laughs> um, but at any rate, um, uh, that I remember hearing, oh, Voyager got really tired because Star Trek kind of had said everything it had to say. And it's like, can you really get to that point where you've said everything that you have to say? Now, of course, Star Trek has kept going and, and going and going and going. And I think that some of the things that have come out of it have been good and have felt vital. But at the same time, it's like that feeling of we're going to keep doing this. You're going to keep watching it and you're going to keep liking it. But but it's kind of done. Yeah, well, they, I, I yeah. think we have to re I think we have to re distinguish among a bunch of different things that we mean by nostalgia, right? Like, because what, what happens in this movie is different from the, like the rebooting or kind of returning to the Star Trek franchise, right? Like the, the, it's like, here's a new take on, uh, on the same characters, right? Like this is more like, this is more like child's play. And I mean that literally, right? Like (laughs) it kids, you know, you grab, you have like a plastic, plastic bin full of different, um, dolls, right? Like, and you play in like Batman fights Optimus prime or something like that, you know, and, uh, whatever. And, and, uh, the T-Rex from, you you know uh the Jurassic World franchise and King Kong sort of battle and like it really scale size and scale are relative like the the it depends which plastic toy is bigger and things like that right like um and that that's sort of the experience that this film offered right like wouldn't it be awesome if 
I don't know. We, uh, wouldn't it be awesome if the pirate skull from the Goonies were in the thing and there was an orb with uh, with like a Latin spell yeah. on it? But then the whole right and it it had that that sort of that sort of feeling. I think something different. You, I think you, you know what did that Matt and did it much better than this movie is the Lego movie. Lego movie, yeah. Oh yeah, sure. Um, it feels like the Lego movies. But it that, totally feels like Lego and Lego Batman. I didn't see the Lego Ninjago. I apologize to you and to my family. Actually, you don't get to run the government either, Pete. <laughs> I, Where's my geek cred? Oh, no, my geek cred! It just fell under the couch. Oh, you've been zeroed out, Pete. I've been zeroed out because I didn't see the Lego Ninjago. But the, but the, Man, the that, point... Oh, yeah. That? If that were the end of Ready Player One, it's like, you need to recite every line of the Lego Ninjago movie. <laughs> Why? Why do I have to do that? <laughs> sorry, sorry. Continue. But the, the um, right that that's closer to this, and then that's different from like rebooting a franchise, and that's different from what actually goes on in the in the novel of Ready Player One, which is this obsessive rewatching of the actual, you know, actual mm-hmm. Roseanne, right? Like actual Family Ties. I think Family Ties is the one that's that that comes up a lot in the in the book. Um, Early in the novel, that that uh, like going back. No, I I mean I do that. Like I, you know, I'm on my like. There's there's never a bad time to rewatch a season of The West Wing, you know, uh, <laughs> right? Like there's never a bad time. Hell, I've I've actually yeah I've found copies off the back of a truck of Night Court, right? Like, and that's uh, to me that's a different thing than if ABC were like we're rebooting Night Court, starring you know I don't know who would be. Uh, uh, who would be Nike starring Mark Marin as as uh, the judge? You know? Cut and print. <laughs> wow, my God! Hold on, I got to make a phone call. But, uh, We're bringing back Alf with starring Brian Cranston. Right? Yeah, exactly. Right? We're like bringing that- back Mr. Belvedere starring Michael Clark Dunk. Oh, he's dead. Michael. Jeez, I'm trying to think who would be Mr. Belvedere. Right, that the the recognition of things is going to lead to kind of a positive emotional valence that is going to redound to the commercial benefit of the, you know, of of the project. And one of the best criticisms I ever read of I I saw of Ready Player One was in a YouTube video uh, called Ready Player One for Girls, and it was um it was a. Uh, you know, it was a, a sort of thing. It wasn't, there was one, I think, on McSweeney's that was um, a similar idea, but it was uh, in, it was in YouTube video form. It was different from that. And it kind of replaced all the references with references to like My Little Pony or, th- or things, yeah. things like Felicity, that. Felicity, American Girls. Yeah. Like that, that, most that, of the stuff from stuff. the early 90s, ironically. Yeah. Enough. I mean, I feel like that's actually, uh, not a particularly great criticism of the work because I feel like there is a commercial space for, for things like that. You know, um, the idea of, I mean, the idea of, uh, 50 shades coming out of like twilight fan fiction, for example, right? Like there is, there is pastiche. There is a property for a sort of pastiche and for, you know, um, the kind of combinatorial possibilities of, of, uh, female centered properties. But when, but, but in the course of this video, I think there was, buried a uh a a criticism which was that which was delivered in total sick burn uh sarcastic form um where the narrator of the video looked right into the camera wide-eyed and said i love reading lists of things i recognize 
<laughs> and, and that was the, uh, you know, and, and right. Like, I, I think that that, you know, the, the, um, the, uh, that's the kind of the, the weak form. That's, that's the, uh, the weak anthropic nostalgia, right? That, that like, uh, it has to be this way. Uh, it has to be this way because that's the way it is. Remember the way it was, right? And the, uh, the strong anthropic nostalgia is it has to be this way because these, um, these patterns are like the Legos in the universe just want to snap together uh into these into these patterns lego is interesting because it provides a substrate so that everything can be alike in one sense even while it's it's unalike uh in others and so like i don't know whether it whether it was like uh my little pony playing with gem dolls playing with uh uh felicity right like or um I don't know, Transformers fighting, uh, right, like fighting Knight Rider and, uh, I God, I don't know. Help me out. Help me out with some more uh, great. Are you talking about Gundam fighting Mechagodzilla? Oh, you mean like actual fights that we would have? That yeah, exactly. Imagine. Right. Like I'm trying to. I'm trying to imagine equivalent kinds of things. Like I, I find it a lot. Uh, you mean like the Dino Riders assaulting the electronic Dream Phone? <laughs> <laughs> right. See, He's all not at the mall. Math <laughs> is hard. Let's go shopping. The the um the whole this whole thing is a lot more fun to me. Than what's in the book, which is lists of lists of things, lists of things that I recognize, and I, th- I think the movie tries to partake in this uh, in a way that that in, you know, in the end, sort of satisfies me. The best part was the race at the beginning, right? The sort of most fun uh, mashup of of different things, much more than the kind of the c- cacophonous final battle, which was all um, you know, which was just this barrage of sound and motion. Uh, I feel like the race had a, a little bit of um, focus to it and you know king kong and t-rex and swinging uh swinging balls from fast and the furious wrecking balls and uh other things i i I thought that was a blast and it was also pitfall style because it had the part above ground and the part below ground which was kind of interesting yeah uh but the other cool thing about thinking about baskets of toys is that they're accrued over time and also if you have siblings they accrue to more than one person so they represent a, a, a plurality of perspective, both in terms of, you know, human beings are not the same tomorrow as they are today, and also because it might not just be you. And I, I do want to come back and mention that I think it's really important that the book Ready Player One is pre-Nintendo Entertainment System. I think it's really important. And I and even so, even when you get all the way to the end of the book Ready Player One, they have a room where you see all of Halliday's uh, video game consoles and it's like his Tandy and his Commodore 64 his ColecoVision so all of the ones from like 1975 to like 1982 are all identified by name up, th- up through and including like the Atari 2600 and then it just goes several Nintendo consoles Playstations and Xboxes and I just I just feel like if we're just going to say that this is a nostalgic work that's about video games we really should acknowledge that you know it, it the video games died in you know it, when atari died and they didn't come back until the nintendo brought them back and when super mario is out there it's just a fundamentally different sort of interaction with the medium than when you're playing like combat or, or missile command or like in the books tempest you know or or, or pac-man it's just it's just very different 
And it's it, it makes me think of something that I saw Shigeru Miyamoto say in an interview that I saw on YouTube recently, which was he talked about, well, why does Super Mario, why does the mushroom make Super Mario grow? And the mushroom makes Super Mario grow because they figured out from testing that people playing the game really liked the big Mario. The idea originally was that Mario was going to be big the whole time. And people loved that the character was so big. And then they decided that because the character was so big, that, 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 that people liked the big character, they would create a moment where the character became big. And they would put this sound effect on it in order to like draw attention to the thing about the game that people liked. And and that's why they have you get the mushroom so early on in the first part of the first level. And and so you get pulled into this idea of like, ooh, this is nice. And they even like made they made up Goombas because they wanted the first enemy in the first level to be easier to kill. Because they wanted you to like learn, right? They wanted you to learn quickly. And when I think about that kind of attitude about a game, that a game is designed around experiences of fun that people learn intuitively from playing it. And then I go back and I think about, like, you talked about the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy text adventure game, but also, like, Tempest, the old Star Wars game. You know, all those really hard vector graphics arcade games. Uh, you know, even even stuff like um, Dig Dug or Tapper or Ice Climber even. I, I guess Ice Climber is a little newer as Nintendo, but, like, it, it just feels like... Video games made a transition in the mid '80s to be something that everybody could like. That that your your collection of games became less of a kind of badge of honor of the things you'd fought against, and more a toy box of the things you could play with. They have brighter colors, younger audiences. It sort of feels like right the childlike the the colors of the screens. Now this might just also be me being nostalgic for the time when I was a kid, which was like a little bit later than playing ColecoVision. Just like a little bit was my my video game time. So I had friends who had this stuff, but it was strange to me and I didn't quite get it. But but this idea that it all opens up and, and it becomes something that everybody gets to play, and the the movie. Ready Player One is engaged with this. Everybody has an avatar. You want to be a Battletoad? You can be a Battletoad. You get to be Gundam. You know, you get to be freaking Ace Attorney, Phoenix Wright, yelling objection over Godzilla. whatever. I don't know. Were there any Pokemon? I don't know. I don't care. But just the point being that um, that it, it is just we, we should just, I don't think we can just assume that video games are video games are video games. And that that there's just a really fundamentally different idea between uh, the relationship. You call it child's play. You know, Chucky is in the movie, too, of course. But the the idea of our video games, child's play or our video games kind of like a sort of serious uh, avenue for kind of personal mastery. Uh, I, I don't know. I guess it goes back to the idea of it being ultimately a story about adolescence and parenting. And, and is it is it the Hunger Games or is it Ferris Bueller's Day Off, I guess, is the question. I'm not sure. One one goes one way, one goes the other. So well, that's my that's yeah. Yeah, I mean pod, pod, podcast comes at you pretty fast. Yeah. I'm uh, I'm nostalgic for the time that we started this podcast, but uh it's uh it's not that time. It's now the time that we ended this podcast uh because that's the time it is. So uh it remains for me to thank you for listening and to thank Pete Fenzel and Mark Lee for podcasting. Like I said, Ready Player One uh comments are open uh overthinking it dot com slash OTIP five oh nine, the number of this episode. We'd love for you to uh you know just 
just uh, get it, get get mix it up with us in the in the great the great battlefield of the comments there because this is if anything if there if anything can be said about Ready Player One it inspires opinions in people uh, that people want to talk about so we would love to hear uh, the opinions of our smart funny friends from the internet hey we'll be back next week with more overthinking and podcast till then buy Otis Coin. And visit us on the web at overthinkingit.com, where we subject the popular culture to a level of scrutiny it It probably doesn't deserve. Congratulations. You've destroyed the vile red falcon and saved the universe. Consider yourself a hero. <laughs>